Genesis chapter 4. Adam lay with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will not be accepted. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I do not know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was building the city, building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujal. Mehujal was the father of Methushal. Methushal was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, Listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, 
God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, men began to, to call on the name of the Lord. Amen. Friends, uh, why don't we bow in prayer? <clears throat> Father, we do thank you that uh, you have spoken to us so clearly in your word and that your word uh, speaks uh, so um, resoundingly of your uh, plan and your desire for us as your people. And uh, your word uh, expresses so clearly the uh, state of our world and the uh, relationship uh, between uh, human beings and yourself. Father, we uh, thank you that um, uh, we hear truth through your word and that your word diagnoses uh, our lives and the society in which we live. We pray today that as we <clears throat> look at uh, Genesis chapter 4, that you would be enlightening our minds and our, our hearts, that uh, you would be uh, reinforcing your truth in uh, distinction from what we hear from our world, that uh, we would be people who live with a right understanding of what it means to be uh, human and what it means to uh, live in relationship with yourself. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. From my observations, I think it's true to say that most Aussies no longer hate the word sin. Now, I don't think that's not good news because I think the reason that most Aussies don't hate the word sin is because we, as a society, tend to no longer use the word sin. Um, sometimes, you know, we talk about doing the wrong thing, but even that's, to some extent, going a little bit out of fashion. Uh, think about the apologies that are often made very publicly by high-profile people when they're caught out uh, doing something. And uh, when you look at those apologies, I don't think that you're going to hear anyone say, I am sorry, I have sinned. I don't think you're going to hear people saying, I'm sorry, there's something deep in my heart which is corrupt and wrong and that has expressed itself. And I need to say, it's so sad that we don't even see church leaders coming up with that kind of apology when it's necessary to do so in the public domain. And you, uh, you don't hear that very rarely Will you hear someone say, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong? Uh, you're more likely to hear terminology like, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Or, I'm sorry, I made an error of judgment. Or, a slip of the tongue. And the way forward often uh, is seen to be in terms of education. So the, you know, the football player who gets caught in a sex uh, scandal or the, uh, the uh, shock jock who makes a, a racist remark, part of the punitive uh, procedure, the punitive way forward for them is to uh, go and enrol in and to participate in education programs, you know, to, 
to teach people how you're supposed to relate to women and to teach people about other races and how people feel and so on uh, when you say racist things against them. And uh, these may, of course, be very good education programs, but uh, it plays into a, into a, a bigger realm of thinking in our society which says that uh, education uh, probably is the answer to uh, human behaviour problems. Now, you know, I'm in favour of education. Uh, you know, and many of us are actively engaged in the whole uh, education enterprise, be we teachers or students or people who've been taught and people, parents who are encouraging education in our kids and so on. Uh, education is a great privilege. It's one of the most valuable gifts that a person can receive. But to say that better education uh, can fix the problems of human behaviour, these mistakes, you know, these errors of judgement, these slips of the tongue, uh, how true is that? I mean, how does that bear out in terms of our... There's a lot of highly educated people in, in Parliament, isn't there? How does it bear out in terms of our experience? Because if that were the case, then we would have to be looking for the fruit of that and in Australia we've got uh, although we you know criticize our education and so on we've uh, got one of the better education systems uh, in the world and we'd have to look at that and the fruit of it and say well has a better education system created a society of people who are more honest who are more moral who are more generous who are more loving people has it done that? Or are we actually not dealing with the heart of the issue? And, and of course, Christians have long said that the, uh, the heart of the human problem is the problem actually not just of the mind, but of the human heart. And that's what we saw some of last week in Genesis chapter 3. In uh, Genesis so far, we've seen that God in his creation has created something which he declared to be very good. But uh, last week uh, we saw a bleak picture, a picture of Adam and Eve making a bid for independence from God, from their creator. Now, you know, when sin used to be used in the Australian vocabulary, it was uh, generally, <clears throat> you know, in terms of uh, people doing, the, you know, the wrong, wrong actions and usually all bound up with sexual you know, activity. So we used to talk about people living in sin, didn't we? Anyone remember those days when we would talk about people living in sin? So sin was seen as some kind of an activity that was generally bound up with sexual promiscuity. And uh, certainly uh, those actions at one level are sin, but at another level they are really the expression of something which is more deep-seated uh, than the action itself. Uh, last week we saw that sin is deeper than that, that uh, it is in fact an attitude uh, which says that I, I'm going to live my life my way, not God's way, that there's an arrogance, there's a pride which says that I know better than God in terms of what's good for me. And so when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, 
wasn't just that action, it was the underlying motivation, the attitude, which uh, said that, well, God has said not to eat the fruit, but I know better than God. And as they did that, sin and the consequent judgment entered the world. But if you open up your Bibles at Genesis chapter 3, uh, you'll see that when you scan down to verse 15, that there was a glimmer of hope. Because what we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, is that uh, as part of the punishment that would be meted out on the, the serpent, who is the personification of Satan, that uh, God says that he's going to put enmity between the woman and her, her offspring and the offspring of the, uh, of the serpent. And that uh, the woman's offspring would crush your head. Do you see that? Verse 15, the second, the second part of it. He will crush, the offspring of the woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So Satan had led Eve into sin, but the offspring of Eve would crush Satan. Now, imagine that you're someone who's reading Genesis for the first time ever. And then you've read that, and then you get to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, imagine you're reading this for the first time. Chapter 4, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now, reading that for the first time, what would you now expect to happen? There is now an offspring of the woman. The woman's offspring would crush Satan's head. So you, you might be thinking that uh, there's now going to be uh, some kind of a battle where Eve's offspring would be tempted to sin, but that he would master it. And we might expect that. We might expect him to crush the head of uh, Satan. But in Genesis chapter 4, sin is not defeated. Uh, instead, as, human, as more humans are born, uh, sin um, snowballs. I'm not sure if that's the right analogy, snowballing, because someone pointed out to me after the first service that it gathers snow, but eventually the snow melts. <laughs> Uh, it's this idea, someone suggested maybe mould is a better way of expressing it, something that sort of grows, you know, exponentially. And it just, you know, it's, you get the idea, don't you? That in Genesis chapter 4, sin rolls on and sin increases and increases out of control. Uh, and it, it gets worse as the generations roll on. Adam and Eve were the first generation. And in uh, verses 2 through to 8, uh, the story then focuses on the second generation. It focuses on Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, the older son, Cain, uh, grew vegetables for the family. The uh, younger son, Abel, became a shepherd, and so he produces meat for the family. And in verses 3 through to 5, both of the brothers bring a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, the younger brother, 
but not with Cain's sacrifice. Have a look at verses 3 through to 5. Verse 3, um, in verse 3, uh, it says, <clears throat> In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits... Uh, let me read this again with emphasis. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offertory to the Lord, but a but Abel bought fat portions from some of the first firstborn of his flock. Uh, the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, why is it that uh, God did not look with favour on Cain's offertory? We're not told explicitly. We need to read uh, between the lines, in a sense, and uh, look at what the, what, how the offertories were described. Uh, the offertory of Abel is described <clears throat> in terms of being the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock, uh, whereas the offertory of Cain is simply described as some of the fruits of the soil. You see that? And, and so it, uh, it seems reasonable to uh, conclude from that that the reason that uh, God has rejected the sacrifice of Cain is because Cain was giving God the leftovers. He wasn't giving God the best of uh, the produce. And what ensues is interesting because Cain is then upset that God has not accepted his sacrifice. In verses 6 and 7, we see that. Uh, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now, it seems that Cain, in one sense, he wants to be close to God. And so you know, that's why he's making an offertory. But he wants to hold back from God as well. He wants to hold back for himself. And that's why his offering was not accepted but it's not the end of the world. Notice here that God gives Cain a couple of options. He you know, it, it says it's, it's what you do next that counts, Cain. Uh, it's, there is a future here. And he says if you do the right thing, then you'll be accepted. But if you don't do the right thing, then sin is crouching at the door. Two options. Now, which option does he then take? Well, in verse 8, he takes the second option chooses not to do the thing which is honouring to God, not to move forward. Instead, he decides to move backwards. And so in verse 8, he takes his jealousy out on his brother, on his little brother. He lures him to a remote place and he murders him. I mean, how's that for a strategy for impressing God? Great strategy, isn't it? You can see that he's actually ruled. He's not mastering sin. Sin is mastering him. Now, and, and that therefore 
sin has just become deeper. Uh, it's, it, sin has, has expanded. Uh, think about Adam and Eve. How did they behave towards God after they sinned? When God went uh, uh, walking in the garden, uh, what did Adam and Eve do? Adam and Eve, they, they hid. They hid. They were, they were ashamed, weren't they? They knew that they had done wrong. They, they didn't want to face God. They were ashamed. So when God came looking for Cain after he's murdered his brother, was Cain knocking at the knees? Was he shaking? Was he trembling at the thought of facing up to God? Well, have a look at verse 9. In verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? He just murdered his brother. Does he hide from God? Is he scared? No, he doesn't flinch. And, and, and we know that because he actually backchats God with a smart aleck remark. When he says that, am I my brother's keeper? It's, Hebrew is shepherd. You know, and Abel was a shepherd. You know, Am I a shepherd for my brother? My brother's supposed to be a shepherd. Am I his shepherd? His heart is even harder than his parents'. And look at how he re reacts to God's judgment in verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. When God punished Adam and Eve, they accepted it um, with shame. But not Cain. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. It's not fair. You can't do this to me. I might get murdered. Someone might kill me. That's not fair. See, he's worse than his mum and dad. He is the murderer. He is not the one who says, God, I am deeply sorry for what I've done. I'm ashamed of the murder of my brother. I deserve your judgment. Please, God, forgive me. Is this how he's responding? No. No. He's got the hide to actually appeal the sentence that God has delivered. Now, as we look further at the story of Cain and Abel, um, of Cain, rather, I'm aware that Genesis ch chapter 4 does uh, arouse um, some questions uh, for some people. And the questions revolve around uh, whether or not Adam and Eve and their family were the only humans who lived at the time. Uh, <clears throat> these are interesting issues, they're side issues in one sense, 
because the, the Bible teaches that all humans inherit Adam's fallen nature. Uh, but how does that fit in with some of the other details in Genesis chapter 4? Um, think about it. Uh, if Adam and Eve and Cain were the only humans at this time, then in verse 14, who was Cain afraid would kill him? Right. Or, or in verse 17, you know, we're told that uh, uh, Cain uh, was married, that he lay with his wife. Well, who, where did Cain's wife come from? Uh, and, and in verse 17 also, why did Cain build a city? I mean, you know, who were the people who lived in the city? What, if they're the only family, what, what does he need to build a city? What does it mean to build a city? And so, you know, when you look at that at one level, it sounds like, and some people have said, well, maybe there's other people about. Uh, there's other big questions too, of course. Um, how does this fit in with uh, what scientists say that they have observed about other people living in other parts of the world? Um, big, big questions, big issues. Um, and I, I'm not going to cover those today, but I, I might be able to say just a few things which might be helpful, and I'm happy to talk to you about those things over morning tea at other times during the week and so on. But just a few things which may be helpful for you in your thinking... Um, and the first one is this, that the author of Genesis has a purpose in writing uh, what he's written for us. And the passage and the surrounding passages clearly teach us about the nature of sin, about the spread of sin and about the consequences of sin. And so it does not give us a detailed account of everything that was happening. Uh, it doesn't. I, I like to think of it as being the difference between a, a beautiful portrait of a human uh, in contrast to a, a, a doctor's anatomy picture of a human. Uh, where you know one gives us detailed technical information uh, and the other creates for us uh, an impression. And, and that, that is what I think is going on here. Uh, the information that we're given in Genesis 4 achieves the purpose of the author and the purpose is to paint a picture of the nature of sin, of the spread of sin, of the consequences of sin. And so we need to bear that in mind. Uh, but of course we can speculate uh, because God's word is true and God reveals himself through uh, the creation, uh, what we would call general uh, revelation, and through the word, which we call specific revelation. Both are true. And so we can speculate about what might have actually happened here because in chapter 5, verse 3 of Genesis, we're told that Adam and Eve actually had other sons and daughters. Uh, and their stories are not recounted for us uh, because they're not part of the specific purpose that the author has in teaching us from the story of Cain and Abel and the descendants of Cain. 
And that's, that's normal in reporting uh, and telling stories, isn't it? You know, you read stories in the newspaper of specific things that are happening with specific people and you're not told about their brothers and sisters and, you know, the whole picture. And so, therefore, some would say, well, the people that Cain feared uh, would be uh, his other brothers uh, who would want to come and avenge the murder of Abel. Um, some would say that, well, perhaps his wife was one of his sisters. That's not out of the question. And what about the city that he built in verse 17? Well, uh, what does it mean for it to be a city? Uh, perhaps uh, it is the case, as we know from other parts of the Old Testament, that a city could amount to, to just a few dwellings, uh, just a few homes with, with a wall around it, sort of like a family fortress. So there's a few thoughts. Then there's the other issue of the observations of sciences like anthropology, which at the very least, at the very least, suggest people living in other parts of the world for a very long time. So how do we match that with what the Bible says about our connection with Adam? Uh, that, that's actually a huge topic. Uh, and to go into more detail uh, would distract us from the meaning of Genesis 4, but it's something I'm very, very happy to chat about over morning tea and other times during the week. The basic principle, though, is that when our observation of the world seems to contradict our understanding of the Bible, then what we need to do is go and take a deeper look at both. How certain are we of the observations of the world? How certainly are we that they're accurate? Have we understood the Bible well enough on, that, on this particular issue? And so these are good questions. These are appropriate questions. But they're actually not the questions which this passage is answering. It's not an, it's not an anatomy chart. It's a portrait of humanity and the nature and the spread of sin. So that's what I want to move on to. Because sin has a devastating effect, doesn't it? it and we see it here in the person of Cain, because sin has damaged the, the vital relationships in Cain's life. It has damaged his relationship with God, who now... He's to some extent alienated from, although God is merciful to him. It has damaged his relationship with his environment. I mean, his father, when he was punished, you know, that meant that he would now have to work pretty hard with the land to develop a crop. But for Cain, uh, the punishment is that the land is not going to yield a crop for you in a, at all. And it's damaged his relationships with, with other people. He's now a marked man, living in fear, a wanderer who uh, takes his wife, uh, leaves his family, goes to another place and lives in buildings, perhaps with a defensive wall around his compound, and that's his city. He's a prisoner of fear. 
And why? Because he didn't crush the serpent's head. Because he did not master sin. Instead, sin mastered him. So Adam and Eve were the first generation. Sin entered the world. Cain and Abel were the second generation. Sin became worse. And then in verse 19, the the story leaps over to the seventh generation. And that's the story of Adam and Eve's great, 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 great grandson. I think I got that right. Great, 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 great grandson. Uh, His name is Lamech and he is a nasty piece of work. Let's have a look at verse 19. Lamech married two women. Let's just pause there for a moment. Because you can skip over that when you're reading the passage. Lamech married two women and keep on reading. But wow. Because in Genesis chapter 2, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Monogamy is God's purpose for marriage. Lamech, he's now introduced polygamy. And, you know, uh, polygamy became a widespread practice as sin uh, spread. And uh, we see in the Bible that uh, uh, every time that the Bible teaches us about some guy that's gone and married more than one wife, it always ends badly. The Bible never endorses polygamy. But you see, Lamech married two women. One named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. And Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. Uh, very creative people. We see that uh, in this family line that music is invented, the flute and the, and the harp. Uh, we see the uh, ingenuity and the pro- productivity in terms of tools are forged from iron and from bronze. And their creativity and their technology shows that they're doing what God had ordained for man, and that is to rule over the world and to subdue the world. But there's one thing they could not do. No matter how sophisticated they had become, they could not stop the advance of sin. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives... Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Do you see the progression of sin? I mean, Adam and Eve were ashamed of their sin Cain at least tried to evade God's question about Abel. He didn't want to own up, but not Lamech. Lamech killed a man. Was he ashamed of it? No. 
He, he didn't sin. It, it wasn't even a mistake. It wasn't a, an error of judgment or a slip of the tongue. No, no, he, he's proud of what he's done. He wants people to know. He even writes a poem which he recites to his two wives. Very creative. Friends, the message of Genesis 4 is that sin spreads and sin gets worse. But yet as sin spirals and grows through each of the generations, so too does the mercy of God. God was merciful to Adam and Eve. He clothed them. They didn't deserve that. God was merciful to Cain. He put a mark on his head so that no person would kill Cain. He didn't deserve that. And later when God floods the world, he rescues one family, the family of Noah, and saves them. They didn't deserve that. As sin increases, mercy abounds more and more. But Genesis chapters 3 and 4 is not just the story of the sin of these ancient individuals, of Adam and Eve, of Cain, of, of Lamech. It's a portrait of the nature of sin, the spread of sin, and the consequences of sin. In Genesis chapter 1, God said that it was all very good. You and I live in this world, and... You and I uh, experience sin in our own lives and sin in the society around us and we know what it's like. Our experience of life is that work is hard, that pain is a reality and that death happens. Our experience of human life is that relationships are very often fractured that uh, people are out of relationship with one another, that there is envy, there is jealousy, there is pride, there is hatred, there is warfare. And we live the reality with the reality that uh, many people, most people, live outside of a relationship with God. You and I may have lived outside of a relationship with God if we were converted later in life. People in our families, people who we love, people who we work with, people who we go to school with, people who we live next door to, who are living their lives without a relationship with the living Lord. That's a reality. And so what's the solution? Well, the solution goes back to that glimmer of hope in chapter 3, verse 15. The solution is all bound up in the offspring of Eve that Cain was not the offspring who would crush the serpent's head. And uh, if we uh, go forward to Hebrews uh, chapter 2 just for a moment uh, as we finish up. It's nice to hear those words we're about to finish up, isn't it? Sometimes, yep. If you have a look at Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 2 on page 847, in verse 14, Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus became one of us. So that by his death he might destroy him, crush the serpent, 
Destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Jesus, the descendant of Eve, was tempted by Satan, but he stared Satan down. The serpent struck at his heel, but on the cross, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. As Paul says in Colossians, that uh, he has taken away the power that Satan had over us by his death on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our, can I say the word, sin, our rejection of God. And he paid the penalty for sin so that sinners, that's us, can actually be forgiven, can actually be restored back into a right relationship with our Creator God and with other people and ultimately with the creation itself in the new heavens and the new earth. See, apart from the sin bin you know, at the footy, the word sin has almost dropped out of the Australian vocabulary, but not for us. We don't need to pretend that sin does not exist. We don't need to pretend that we are not sinful beings. We don't need to make excuses or to call sin by some other non-judgmental name. We can be honest with God. We can lay our lives bare before God. We can say, I have rebelled against you. I don't deserve your love. But we can be honest, we can be open, we can be frank with God. We don't need to hide from God. We don't need to make excuses. We don't need to run because we know that the serpent's head has been crushed. We know that he is a God who is loving and who is merciful and through the work of Christ has done that which technology, education, creativity could never do. He's paid for our guilt. He's brought us back into relationship so that we're freed from the fear of death. and We're freed in order to love and serve him as we were designed to do. And that's what we're going to be celebrating in a few moments. Uh, when the uh, Sunday school kids come in, we're going to be uh, sharing together in the Lord's Supper. as a very physical, a very tangible way of uh, of reminding ourselves and of expressing the fact that the death of Jesus on the cross means that it's been dealt with once and for all and we can find true liberty, true freedom by being open with God and finding his mercy in Christ Jesus. Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in revealing to us our state before you and, uh, Father, for doing that which was necessary to bring us back into right relationship with yourself, with each other and ultimately with the created order. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And uh, we pray that uh, we would have such an understanding of what he's done for us that we would no longer be ashamed 
uh, that we would be an open book before you, knowing of your mercy. And we pray for our world. We pray for our, uh, our nation. We pray for our own community. We pray for those who we know and love. Uh, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit, whose role it is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. For we know that when that happens, when people's hearts are penetrated, when they humble themselves before you and seek forgiveness, that there is a Saviour who you have given. And so we pray for ourselves as well, that we would be sharp in our understanding of humanity and of your righteousness and of sin and your grace. Uh, that we would be able to share that with others and be used by you to draw others into the forgiveness and freedom that we have found. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.